0: Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 29th of January, 2020. Uh, uh, Just a reminder that um, if you've got 1099s to get out, you've got like two days to do it. Uh, There you go. That's my my little tax update Um, in terms of the tax calendar. What are you dealing with today? What's taxing you? It's always a good conversation to have, good consideration to bring before the Lord first thing in the morning. Have you been in the Word of God today? We certainly need to be in the Word before we are in the world. Uh, I'm going to take us into James chapter 3 this morning, and my lead into that conversation is going to be what we're cultivating in the culture. I know that where you live, it is possible that there's still snow on the ground. But uh, where I live, for some odd reason, it seems that spring is already upon us. The robins were in my yard yesterday, plucking up worms. Uh, And there are definitely um, the signs of spring leaping forth from the ground in terms of little green shoots. And so my husband dutifully went out yesterday and pruned back all of our fruit trees because you're supposed to do that in the winter. And it appears as if uh, winter is just barely nearly over. And so as spring approaches, we, we think about cultivating the soil. We think about the garden we're going to plant. We have conversations around the dinner table about what we want to be eating in the summer and in the fall and how we need to be preparing for those um, harvests now. And that got me thinking about the culture and reaping what we sow. And as you look around the culture today, are you seeing fruits of righteousness or are you seeing fruits of unrighteousness? It's it's kind of actually like a fruit salad of both. I mean, I, I recognize that. There are places that we look and we see uh, certain uh, certain signs of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But uh, we also see other signs uh, around the culture as we look today. We see um, fruits of distrust, distrust, incivility, rage, hate. I mean, you know, on and on and on. And so, if you don't like the harvest that you are witnessing, then you have to consider what you need to do to the soil, and what seeds you need to be planting, and how you need to be cultivating the culture if you want to see a different harvest in the future. And so if you're like me and you want to see a different harvest in the future, then you and I have to be culture gardeners um, starting right now because we do reap what we sow. James chapter 3 verses 3 to 18 says, if you're wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. If you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will also find disorder, and evil of every kind. And then, and then James says this, picking up at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others, full of mercy, and yeah. the fruit and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It's always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will they plant seeds of peace? and they reap a harvest of righteousness. And so if you and I don't like the harvest of unrighteousness being produced in our own lives or in the culture writ large, then it's time to do the hard work of what I will describe as culture gardening. Part of that process is understanding the current condition of the soil. And so to help us understand the current condition of our cultural soil, I've invited Dr. Paul Miller from Georgetown University to kind of explain to us the difference uh, the difference in worldview of Americans today. The underlying worldview is either creedal or it's tribal are you a creedal American or a tribal American that conversation up next you're on mornings with Carmen
2: now I'm a-
0: Welcome back. I have joining me this morning, Paul Miller. He is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University in their School of Foreign Service. He's the co-chair of Global Politics and Security Concentration in uh, their program there. You can find him, uh, well, uh, lots of places, but you can certainly find him at georgetown.edu. Dr. Paul Miller, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
0: So, Paul, one of the places where I read what you are writing is at Providence Magazine, which is, uh, folks can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. You recently uh, have a piece there entitled America, creedal or tribal? Um, And that's a question. And so will you pose the question a little bit more fully, and then we can talk about uh, those two sort of competing ideas.
1: Yeah, so thanks. And uh, you mentioned Providence Magazine. I just want to say how much I've enjoyed that place and enjoyed writing for it. Uh, And again, I encourage your listeners to check out the magazine if they have an opportunity at ProvidenceMag.com. I wrote uh, this uh, article exploring two different ways of thinking about American identity. Um, Some Americans define us as a people, as Americans, primarily by our ideals, the ideals of the Constitution and the Declaration, ideals of freedom and equality, of checks and balances in our government, of uh, the freedom of speech and expression, other Americans, um, and and over the centuries, these two groups have sometimes overlapped. Other Americans define us primarily by a shared cultural heritage. They sometimes define it as the cultural heritage of Anglo Protestantism, which is understandable considering how influential, how important Anglo Protestantism has been in our history. Uh, but you know, in my view, and to 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 kind of give you the argument here, I think it might be a mistake to confuse that influential heritage with the identity of the country itself. And I'm happy to kind of unpack that idea further.
0: Yeah, I think that would be really helpful. One of the things, Paul, we're trying to do is get people to actually, you know, think about what we're thinking about and then think about how we're thinking about it. And that's where I feel this particular piece, you know, takes us. So again, the article is America, creedal or tribal. You can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. The author is Paul D. Miller. Um, So let's just dig a little deeper into this, uh, Paul, When when you talk about particularly this understanding of the country uh, as a shared cultural heritage um, wh- where does that get us into trouble
1: Where does it get us into trouble well uh, all, all sorts of places um, you know let me let me talk a little bit about immigration. I think because immigration is, a, is an issue it's a very sensitive issue but it's where we can see the difference between these two conceptions very easily. Uh, I, you know I think that the creedal understanding of America, generally welcomes immigrants, although it recognizes we can restrict immigration if we need to for national security purposes, for economic considerations, but generally welcomes immigrants and the cultural difference that they bring. Uh, I grew up in a family that was not all white, uh, and even today um, I have friends and family members who are not white, and I don't think that makes us less American. I have friends who are not Protestant, who are not Christian, and again, it doesn't mean they're less American. There's a different way of thinking about immigration that says we have to only let in people in this country who are predisposed to accept our prevailing cultural norms of anglo protestantism And that means we should prioritize immigrants who uh, maybe share our values, who are of European heritage, or who profess Christianity. I I just just disagree with that. I think that wrongly uh, conflates American identity with European identity or Christian identity. And this is not true. I think Americans can come from all backgrounds and all faiths, even though I myself am a white Christian. It doesn't mean that everyone in the country has to look like me or believe like me.
0: So immigration might be uh, might be one area in which these two um, understandings diverge. So, again, we're talking about people who um, sort of their basic understanding of America is based on a creed or a creedal understanding, a civic definition of American identity versus those who have a more cultural or nationalistic definition of American identity, um, and therefore would understand America as defined by shared cultural values. So we've talked about immigration. Where might be another area of divergence?
1: Yeah, so another area, um, you know, last summer, and perhaps you or your listeners may be familiar with a debate raging uh, on the sort of on the right between a guy named Sorb Amari and another guy named David French, over this issue of uh, Drag Queen Story Hour. Uh, there's this thing where um, at public libraries where uh, cross-dressers will read to children, and Sorab Amari made the argument, and he's the nationalist here, that we should ban Drag Queen Story Hour um, because we need to protect and promote only the Anglo-Protestant cultural values in our public spaces. And he disagreed with Drag Queen Story Hour and thought it was a bad idea to expose our kids to it. Now, I might share his views on, uh, on uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to take my kids to Dry Clean Story hour, but I sh- sided with David French in this. The government should not exercise uh, its power to discriminate against views that we disagree with. Uh, the government should maintain what uh, is called viewpoint neutrality, and we shouldn't start picking winners and losers in the marketplace of ideas. That's kind of what the First Amendment means. The First Amendment means we're allowed to disagree with each other, and we shouldn't try to use the government to uh, prohibit the activities of groups that we disagree with. So even though I might disagree with Drag Queen Story Hour, I, I think that they have the right to use the library, and uh, when I shouldn't try to use the government to, uh, to prevent that, if that makes any sense.
0: So, uh in the headlines, drag queen story hour is certainly upon us. Um big that's protests right. in Missouri related to it. Conversations uh in some public school districts about bringing drag queen story hour um out of the public library and into the public school. I mean, it is a headline right. that people are aware of. Yeah, this is right. a conversation we talk about. You know, we talk about the moral identity of the country. Um you're you're exactly right. There are those who would understand a moral identity um as as our culture, and others who would understand those of us of a particular moral creed, let's say Christianity, who need to bring that creed to bear to change the culture of our day, like there is an interplay here between the two.
1: Yeah, and to be clear, I fully support uh, voluntary activities by Christians and by other c- civic groups to foster their culture and change the mm-hmm. culture in, in helpful ways. That's absolutely true. That what I'm what I'm opposing is you the government to to enforce that, and I think that's right. that's it crosses a line that is very dangerous and takes us down a road we just don't want to go down um, and, and to speak directly about the Queen story hour in public schools that crosses a line in the other direction. I would not support that I think hosting an event on a library where people can voluntarily come I, I don't want to interfere with that, but if you're going to bring into the schools and essentially force children in public schools to hear that no i I don't, I don't support that at all so these are the kinds of lines we have to practice drawing uh, what is voluntary and what is coerced by the government.
0: Okay, I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with Paul Miller from Georgetown University. We are talking about a piece that he has posted at ProvidenceMag.com. It is America, tribal, or creedal, and we're going to uh, pick up on the other areas of divergence between those, I'll just describe them as worldviews, when we come back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. (laughs) Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Paul Miller from Georgetown University. We're talking about America, tribal or creedal, uh, a piece he has posted at ProvidenceMag.com. Actually, I have the title backwards. It's America, creedal or tribal. But I think people would find it either way. (laughs) Um, And so, so, Paul, we've talked about immigration. We've talked about um, sort of legislating morality or the boundaries related to the conversations that we're having in public. Let's also, um, uh, let's also talk about uh, a third area, and that's actually education and, um, and how we teach American history. Talk, talk about where we diverge in terms of creedalists or tribalists on this point.
1: What I've observed is that uh, creedalists um, want to teach the, sort of the full story of American history, including our failures. I think it's always important to teach about our triumphs, our achievements, uh, the founding and the victory in the Civil War, and the moon landing, and World War II. It's also important to learn about our failures, uh, how we have fallen short of our creed, to challenge ourselves to do better in the future. It's only by uh, confession and repentance, to use Christian language, it's only by confessing our sins, repenting from them, that we can, as a country, do better in the future, and avoid repeating the same sins uh, again. I find that nationalists will sometimes be very hesitant to dwell on our failures, because they feel as if it's an exercise in self-hatred, and they would rather focus much more of their attention on the triumphs and the achievements and how great and strong and powerful America is. And again, I I don't oppose dwelling on our achievements. I think it's an important part of cultivating patriotic pride in our country. But I think we also have to recognize uh, where we've gotten it wrong so that we can do better in the future.
0: So my mom is 81. I, I, I distinctly remember, I mean, she's she's got a college education she was a actually a university professor i distinctly remember the day that she learned that she had not learned american history accurately in relationship yeah. to the internment of the japanese um mm-hmm. in california yeah. she she did not know that happened she was never taught that in school i mean, i got to tell you that was a um that was a transforming moment for her to discover that a really critical part of American history had been withheld from her, and she was, she was, um, she was kind of offended, <laughs> offended by the yeah. reality that she hadn't been told the whole truth. Um, so I think this is a, this is a critical conver- conversation um, at the intersection of these two ways of of understanding who we are. Let's talk about a fourth area, and that's foreign policy and America's role in the world.
1: Yeah. So um, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Um, that's a very powerful way of illustrating it. Um, American foreign policy, this is my wheelhouse. I've spent uh, two decades now of my career uh, on foreign policy. I served in the army. I served in the the national security establishment. So I care about this quite a lot. Uh, The creedal understanding of America understands us to be a city on a hill, uh, a moral exemplar of liberty and equality, a display to all the nations in the hopes that they might actually follow, as indeed they have. If you look over the last two and a half centuries, much of the world has come to agree with us about the self-evident truths we, uh, we we preached at our founding. It was kind of absurd in 1776 to say these truths were self-evident because no one agreed with us. And now today, half the world does, and that is remarkable. The, the nationalist understanding is very different, and I think somewhat dismissive of the reality and importance of these ideals around the world. Uh, it is the view of uh, America first, or sometimes even America alone, and does not really uh, give importance to the spread of ideals of liberal, of liberty and equality around the world. And I, I disagree with that. I think it's plainly true that as our ideals spread, it makes the world safer, more stable, and more friendly to us. And so I would welcome the spread of our creed around the world.
0: When I think about um, the intersection of faith and this conversation that we're having, I, it continues to—I um, mean, I, this is one of the places that I continue to be surprised—that um, Christians— who are also Americans, are really not sometimes able to distinguish the two creeds or distinguish the two uh, identities in terms of their citizenship. Um, can, you, can you just speak to that?
1: Yeah, you, you've nailed it right on the head. That is the $64 million question. Um, and uh, stay tuned for my, my next book. I hope to write on this subject. Um, it, 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 that You're exactly right. Look, I'm a Christian and I'm an American. I'm proud of both. I understand them to be related, but separate identities. And it is important to understand precisely how they're related and how they are separate. Uh, my Christian faith is lived out in my church community, which has the, uh, the power of the keys. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about giving the keys uh, to Peter and the apostles. That's the power of binding and loosing, of teaching God's truth, of organizing right worship of himself. But Jesus does not give the church the power of the sword. And so the church does not have the power to coerce its view on anyone. That's why we believe in religious liberty. That is why Christians should believe in religious liberty for everyone, even including non-Christians. We should understand that we don't have the authority to use government to force our way of life on other people, and we believe in that because the Bible says so, Uh, and I think that's very important. I leave out my identity as as an American citizen within the American polity, which is a, a flawed, imperfect, but... But wonderful place to live. I I think, you know, the best country in the world, best country in the history of the world. I'm proud to have served it in uniform, Uh, and I think that we all ought to cultivate a sense of patriotism. We also ought to hold that identity loosely and recognize that uh, these things change, that culture changes, uh, and that uh, we will never achieve perfect justice in this world, and we should not try to turn America into the kingdom of God. I think that's the, the crux of it, is understanding these are different identities and different polities that we inhabit.
0: So, Dr. Miller, I know you've got a class uh, that you need to, to go and teach. So I just have one one final question, um, because you used a word there, and that's patriotism. Can mm-hmm. you help me just suss out the difference between patriotism and nationalism?
1: Well, I think of patriotism as simply the love and affection for our homes and for what is our, for our particular communities. And it can be as large as the United States of America. I have love and affection for America. Nationalism is a kind of a theory of human life and human political organization. It says that humanity is divided into these groups, these uh, mutually distinct and internally coherent groups defined by some shared trait like heritage or culture or language or, or uh, sometimes ethnicity or religion, and that these groups should each have their own government and the government should use its power to enforce the power of that dominant cultural group. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But I still love my country. I don't believe America has to constitute a unified cultural whole that defends and protects Anglo-Protestantism. I don't believe it at all. But I love America. I love what it is. It's all kinds of things. Yes, Anglo-Protestantism played a big role in our country's history. Uh, you know, I myself am, uh, sort of love that tradition. But I don't expect that all Americans must conform to that cultural template. Uh, America is big enough to be welcoming enough for everyone.
0: Dr. Paul Miller, thank you so much for being with us today. Folks can read um, this particular piece. It is posted at ProvidenceMag.com. We hope you'll join us again.
1: Thank you, Carmen, appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Friends, we'll be right back. So a few days ago, I invited those of you who are listening and have uh, abortion as a part of your history. Um, I invited you to share with me those ministries that have um, been significant in your healing and in your restoration, um, in your redemptive narrative. I also um, just invited you to share with me. And a number of you um, took me up on that uh, invitation. And up next, I'm going to talk with a new friend. Uh, Her name is Bridget Montgomery. She lives in Wisconsin. And she's going to share with us um, God's redemption of her um, of her life. And that includes um, a story of abortion and her recovery from that. Um, don't miss this next segment. Uh, I'm talking with our new friend and your fellow listener, Bridget Montgomery. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. So, this next segment is one that you are not only going to want to hear live, but you are going to want to be able to share with a woman in your life um, or a man in your life uh, who you know has abortion as a part of their history, a part of their story. That may be a daughter, it may be a granddaughter, it may be a niece, it may be a coworker. There are millions and millions of women and men living in this country right now um, under the burden of an unforgiven abortion. And we want every single one of you to know that there is forgiveness and there is hope and there is newness of life. Um, and so when you hear Bridget's testimony, you're gonna to say to yourself, I wanna pass that along. There's somebody with whom I wanna share that. And then you're gonna say, How am I gonna do that? Well, you are gonna go later today to myfaithradio.com. You're going to click on either the podcast or you're going to click on the Mornings with Carmen page. It'll be available in both of those places. And you're going to get a link to the podcast. And then you're going to share that link in a text message or in a an email. You're, you're simply going to share that podcast link with somebody who you know needs to hear this message of redemption and forgiveness um, and freedom and newness of life. Even if, even if, their sin is abortion. So um, we want to make this conversation available not only now live to you, um, but we want to make it available to those whom you know who need this healing balm. So get the podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back.
1: At Heartlight, our residential counseling center for troubled teens, one of my jobs is to repair the horse fences. I need to ensure that the boundaries are strong. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. These sensitive and sometimes stubborn creatures need to know where they can go and where they can't. If a horse breaks any part of the fence, I fix it. When they constantly push on the fence, I reinforce it. Personal boundaries are like good fences. They offer protection and help define what's good. Establishing and constantly reinforcing strong boundaries with your team will ensure that even if they push their limits, they won't get lost or tread into unknown and dangerous territory. Keep building and protecting those fences. Someday, your kids will thank you. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
0: Joining me now, uh, my sister in Christ and a listener to this program. Her name is Bridget. Um, Bridget, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Good morning, Carmen. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for responding to my appeal um, to reach out on this particular topic. This is not the first time that you have told your story. It's not even the first time you've told your story to me. Um, But for many, many listeners, this is a hidden secret. This is a story um, that they 've never told, so by telling your story i 'm hoping that um God will nudge others to to share with somebody who they trust with somebody who is safe um their own story, and that that by releasing the story, they will also begin to um find the the healing that you have found as well so mm. let 's just do this let 's go back to nineteen seventy six and seventy seven Um, Tell Mm -hmm. us your story. Well,
2: in 1976, um, in December, I found myself pregnant um, out of wedlock. And I had, there was really nowhere to go at that time. There were no crisis pregnancy centers or um, I certainly didn't feel like I could go to church with this issue. So I talked to a friend of mine who had had two abortions. And she did volunteer work for a crisis I mean, for a, an abortion clinic in Milwaukee, and she said, "Oh, come to this abortion clinic and talk with the director she's wonderful. Um, I am a nurse I was a nurse at the time I had a very good sense of what um development looked like of a of an embryo or fetus, but my fear and my confusion and my panic um was so overwhelming that I, I thought, well, um, this may be okay for somebody else, but I, I don't think I can do it. So she said, well, just come and talk to her. So I did, and this director was very stern. There was not much compassion about her at all. Um, and I said, well, I, I was raised in, denominationally to believe that this is wrong, Um and she just had a, a counter-argument for every single thing that I brought up. And what I was doing really was arguing my value system. And and I was trying to talk myself out of my value system. She was talking me out of it, but I was equally trying to talk myself out of it because of my fear. And Anytime you make a decision um, based on fear and crisis, it it usually is not the right one, and you will live to regret that. So, I did listen to her. Um, I felt she said, "This is your body. You need to make this decision for yourself." And I went along with it. so then uh, on december thirty first of nineteen seventy six at eight forty five in the morning, I had the abortion. I distinctly remember feeling afterwards that i had I felt like I had been gutted. There was no anesthesia at that time. It was extremely painful. There were many noises in the procedure room that have haunted me ever since, and they haunt me to this day. I'm a little bit able, better able to deal with them. So there is a post-traumatic um, uh, effect that many, many post-abortive women feel after their abortions. I thought that, oh, tomorrow morning on January 1st, it will be a new year. And um, all this will be behind me. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong about that. That was just the beginning of the battle that I was about to face. About three months in, it was my birthday. We were celebrating my birthday with a family dinner. And my brother and sister in law announced that they were pregnant. And I was choking down each bite of food. I it it was it was horrible. I was happy for them, but I was profoundly sad for my my own loss and my own decision. I regretted it. I had a tremendous amount of remorse. I couldn't sleep. I had nightmares. I heard crying babies. I couldn't walk through a baby department. I, I would go all the way around an entire store to not pass baby clothes. Um, every time I heard a suction machine at work, I would get physically sick. It was, um, and the nightmares were relentless. I barely slept for four and a half months. Hmm. So I was starting to think that perhaps, um, I, I was calling on God to forgive me, but I thought he would forgive every sin, but that abortion, but the sin of abortion. And I had I uh, was very afraid to go to sleep, not only because of the nightmares, but, but I thought, if I, when I wake up, Satan will be standing right there, like laughing at me that I made this decision. Mm-hmm. I, I really felt like I was losing, losing my mind. I, I developed some bugs in my apartment, in a closet, little beetle type bugs. And so I called the, um, landlord and he arranged for an exterminator to come. I had been listening to a lot of Christian radio at that time, just trying to glean any little speck of something that would give me some relief from this torture that I was experiencing em- uh, emotionally and mentally and spiritually. that morning, I'm sitting and listening to Christian radio, and I think to myself, the man who is coming is a Christian. The exterminator is, is coming, as a Christian. And I thought, you have lost your mind. This is ridiculous. Stop this right now. And the doorbell rings and the ex- in walks the exterminator. And he says, oh, where's the problem? And I thought, where's the problem? I'll tell you. Well, it's in this closet over here, but there's a lot bigger... <laughs> Problem sitting over here on this couch. And he picks up some bugs and he hears the speaker on the radio who happened to be Jay Vernon McGee. And he said, Oh, you're listening to Christian radio. Are you a believer? And I said, No, I don't think I am. And he he said, Well, what makes you say that? And I said, Oh, I've just done the thing I thought I could never do. And I, I don't think I can live with this. And long story short, He is the one who led me to the Lord. He said, there is no sin that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. And he just walked me right through the Romans road and said the sinner's prayer with me. And before he left with his little baggie of bugs, he said, tell three people today what you have done that you've accepted the Lord. And, um, he left. I never saw him again. The bugs were gone, and I was free. I was free in Christ. It was not let's, the end of the battle, but it—I was—I knew I had been forgiven. Bridget, let's pause right there. Um, if if those listening are like me,
0: um, they're weeping and they're thankful for a landlord who sent an exterminator. Um, they're thankful for an exterminator who um, has a heart for Christ, and they're thankful yes. for your openness. Um, when we we got to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I, I would love for you to share how God has used your testimony to touch the lives of others. Because um, particularly the story that you told me about um, the hundred-year-old woman in hospice care, I just um, I'm just there are so many people listening right now who need to be liberated and. Um, and your story is is helping us release that. So I'm talking with our new friend, Bridget. She's a listener to the program. Um, she lives in Wisconsin. And we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm a love Continuing my conversation with Bridget. Bridget um, has shared with us. Uh, the story of her abortion in 1976, and then the way that God entered into uh, entered into her life through Christian radio, uh, which touched a believer who was there to exterminate some bugs from her closet, um, who was willing to share the gospel um, and invite mm-hmm. her into this family of faith of which we are each and all a part um and then through Bridget God has really extended that grace to so many more people. And so Bridget, let's pick your uh let's pick your story up there. You have been responsive to what I would call God's nudges. So if you could talk a little bit about how God nudges you um and then mm-hmm. share in particular the story that um you shared with me about um the way you have been able to come alongside women who have have had this as this very secret sin for a very long period of time, and even at the very end of life, help them release that?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, Carmen, when you think that there's been 60 million plus abortions since um, 1973, when Roe versus Wade was um, passed, that's 3,659 abortions per day, 152 per hour. There are millions millions of women out there who have had abortions. And this is, this is just since it was legalized. When you think of all the abortions through all of history, which women have been doing for a very long time dealing with crisis pregnancies, um, there are many, many, many out there. Um, I've been privileged to be able to um, stand up before many women, many church groups and youth groups, and give my testimony. And there is never one time that two or three people don't want to talk to me afterwards, and they share this secret that they've never told anyone before. Um, I am a nurse, I do have worked in hospice for many years. And one particular day I had a patient who was just a lovely, lovely Christian woman. She was 100 years old and she was in the dying process and she was going much longer than the dying process should ever last. And I was working second shift at that time. So it was nighttime. We're trying to settle everyone for sleep. um, And she was just very agitated and restless, which was very uncharacteristic for her. And I tried to settle her down. I went back to sit down and do charting, and I had this this just urge, a nudge and an urge to go back in there and talk with her. So I did, and I just said, "Hazel, I said, "You seem so distressed." I said, "Are you at peace with God?" And she shook her head, "No," and i I said, "You're not at peace with God?" and she said, "No," and I said. Is there something that you've done that you feel that you are not being forgiven for? And she nodded her head yes. And I said, well, I can relate to that. Um, And I told her my abortion story. And as soon as I said the word abortion, her eyes popped open and she was just riveted at me. And I just explained that, that there and the sin of abortion isn't any more wrong than any other sin. We just think it is. And I said, God stands ready to. Jesus died on the cross for you to forgive you of this sin. She had a back alley abortion 80 years before this moment, and she had kept it a secret for all those decades. And I, I just told her, I said, God wants to forgive you now, and you. He, you're you're getting ready to cross this threshold into heaven and God's waiting for you with open arms he, and and your baby is waiting for you the tears are running down her face they're running down my face and i said i said i'll pray and you repeat after me as you can. I just said the sinner's prayer. And I'm going to say it now for those women who are out there, who are listening to this, who feel that this sin of abortion is unpardonable. It's not unpardonable. Jesus died for that sin the same. so I would say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have sinned in countless ways. And I know that your death on the cross has was for me and me me alone, and that you have forgiven my sin of abortion. I accept that, and I want to take that, and I want to be free of this um, burden. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And she died about an hour and a half later um, in total peace.
0: So, Bridget, one of the things that I just deeply appreciate, and first of all, thank you so much for um, responding to God's nudging, not just in sharing your testimony here, um, but in responding to God's nudging in in a crisis pregnancy center and, and helping that effort in your own community and responding to God's nudging in terms of, uh, of the environment in which you have worked as a nurse and God's nudging in this environment in terms of hospice. Um, I think that we become resistant to God's nudging, and I just Genuinely appreciate that that's a part of this story is your responsiveness to um, to the to the leading of the Lord and to His presence and to um, the ways in which He He wants to be engaged with us um, at every level mm-hmm. and in every way and we so often resist and so thank you for not resisting um, the nudging of God mm-hmm. today or at any other point in time. I just. Um, I I I can't imagine how difficult it is um, to to share your testimony. But I can assure you, based on the feedback I'm already getting on our text line, um, I can I can assure you this is this is ministering to people today. Um, we want to mm-hmm. encourage people to connect with ministries uh, to post abortive <laughs> men and women. And if you need help finding a post abortive ministry. In your community, you can just email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com, and we will find one. We will help you find one. Um, And and Bridget's also given me permission. If you email me and you want to connect directly with her, I'll provide that information as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Bridget, Mm -hmm. thank you so very much. You and I have to leave it right here today, but I feel like this is a conversation that we will want to continue in the future. Well,
2: thank you so much, Carmen. God bless. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we've
0: got another full hour of Mornings with Carmen. You can email me, Carmen, at myfaithradio.com for the resources we discussed today. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.